Praise to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We give you the honor and the glory that you truly deserve. And Lord, today we pray that as we come into your house and we worship you at your feet, we also pray that you would change us to be more like you. So this morning, our prayer is that you would speak to us from your word, that through your word, you would mold us into the men and women of God that you've called us to be. And we thank you so much for that. God, we lift you high and we praise you and lift all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our amazing Savior. Amen. Good morning and uh, how is everyone? Good. I want you to take your Bibles or your apps or whatever you read on and I want you to turn to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible or forgot to bring one with you this morning, maybe you don't have an app, uh, you can use one of the Bibles that's in the back of the pew. Uh, Just grab one of those and turn to the book of Philippians chapter 4. I'll give you a little hint. If you grab one of our leather-bound Bibles, you will find the book of Philippians starting on page 668. If you grab one of our paperbacks, you'll find the book of Philippians starting on page 551. So we will be in Philippians chapter 4 this morning, so go ahead and be turning there. As you're turning there, let me uh, tell you a little bit about uh, my, my childhood. Uh, growing up, I grew up in this tiny little Texas town. Uh, we had one grocery store, two gas stations, uh, only a, a, about a thousand people in the whole town. It was a farming community. As a matter of fact, I don't know that there was any other uh, industry or economics to the town other than wheat and cattle. Those are the only things that pretty much existed in this small town that I grew up in. And I had, I was very blessed, I had two great-grandmothers that I got to grow up with, that I got to spend time with. Uh, They didn't pass away until uh, later elementary and early junior high in my life. So I got to spend a lot of time with them growing up, and they were polar opposites of each other. They were your typical, you know, very sweet, uh, elderly women. They were both really wonderful to be around, but one of them was about five foot seven and was as skinny as a rail, and the other one was about four foot nine and about as wide. And they were wonderful little ladies. Okay, so one of my grandmothers was very active and it was actually the one you wouldn't think, the really the wider one, had a rose garden in her backyard. Her entire backyard <clears throat> was roses. And she had this beautiful ministry where she would, when the roses came into bloom, she would go and clip all the roses in her garden, and she would go to the nursing home and the hospitals and would pass out fresh roses uh, to the people who, who couldn't get out. My other grandmother sat around watched TV all day long. That's all she did. But both of them drove identical Cadillacs. Now, mind you, this is late 70s, early 80s. So these are like boat-like Cadillacs. These were land yachts. Huge, huge cars. And just as they were polar opposite in every way, they were polar opposite in the way they drove. So my little grandmother that was like four foot nine, Grandma Alexander, that's what I called her, Grandma Alexander, she was the little lady that you would see. She would peek through the steering wheel and the dashboard as she drove along. So you'd see her driving. You could see her hair above the steering wheel, but you couldn't see much else. 
And she would peek through the steering wheel and drive about 30 miles per hour under the speed limit. Now, the speed limit was 35, so that meant everywhere she went, she drove about five miles an hour and just peeked through the steering wheel. And everybody could see her coming in her white Cadillac. Now, my other grandmother, five foot seven, she scooted that seat up as high as she could go, and she had the electric seat that would raise you up as high as it could take you. And she would stand with the steering wheel like this, and she would hit that accelerator to the floor until she hit the next stop sign. And then come to a squealing halt as she approached. Guys, I am not kidding or exaggerating when I tell you, I remember multiple times that we took corners and I felt like I was in a NASCAR race. Squealing tires, the back of that Cadillac would, would slide as she took that corner and then she'd straighten her back out and bring her back around. They were wonderful women, though. I, I can yuck it up with them. I, I loved them so desperately. They were godly, godly women, but they were so opposite in the way they drove. Amazingly, they never got in an accident. Either one of them. I was always afraid that one grandmother was going to get rear-ended, and I always thought the other grandmother was going to be the one rear-ending her. But they somehow managed to never get in a wreck. Now, why am I telling you this story? Today, I want to tell you about who's behind the wheel of our lives and how that driving takes place in our lives. So let's take our Bibles. Let's begin by looking at our passage, Philippians chapter 4. We're going to begin in verse 1. Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. Now listen to what he has to say here. I plead with Eudia, and I plead with Syntyche, to be of the same mind in the same Lord. Yes, and I ask you, true companion, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, Whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Paul gives us some wonderful, wonderful advice here. And we're going to break this down this morning and talk about what he says. But I think there's a theme here. And so here's my big idea for the morning. Here's that idea, that one statement that I want you to take home this week and think about and reminisce about it and let it uh, sit in your soul and in your prayer life and think on. 
And here's what that statement is. Just like driving a car, your mind must be controlled by the one that's behind the wheel. There's someone driving your mind. There's someone that's controlling, who's got the control of the steering wheel and the brake pedal and the accelerator of your mind. And you want to know who that is? That's you. We all have the power, the control through Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, to control where our minds go. We have the ability to control our direction mentally, emotionally. And that's what Paul is saying here. We cannot be under the delusion that we don't have control over our thoughts. As a matter of fact, I think it's better put this way. We may be behind the wheel, but Jesus is sitting in the navigator's seat. He's got the turn-by-turn directions. But here's the question. Are you listening to Jesus' directions? Are you paying attention when he leans over and touches you on the arm and says, Hey, 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 slow down a little bit. Okay, you're coming to a stop and then you're going to make a right turn. Are you paying attention to the instructions that Jesus has for you and the way he instructs us to control our minds and thoughts? If you go into 2 Corinthians chapter 10, you're going to read in verse 5 these words. We take every thought captive to obey Christ. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. We are commanded to take every thought captive under the control of Jesus Christ. And I think that's what Paul is talking about here. So I've got three issues that I think Paul addresses in this passage here in Philippians chapter 4. Three areas of our lives, our mental thinking, that Paul instructs us to take control of and put them under the obedience of Jesus Christ. So here's the first issue. Verses 1 through 3, Paul addresses how our minds should think of others within the church. Verses 1 through 3, look at what he says. He says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Eudia, and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Apparently, there were two ladies in the church who were fighting. Imagine that, people in the church disagreeing with each other. I mean, that would never happen here, but let's hypothetically... Let's hypothetically imagine what it must have been like for Paul as he's hearing reports that two women within the church, two people within the church, are rivaling against each other, are fighting against each other, and it's harming the church. You see, we have to take the wheel of our minds when it comes to our relationships within the church. As a matter of fact, we need to take control of the wheel of our mind in all of our relationships. The fact is, is over and over throughout God's Word, it commands us to live peaceably with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and with the world around us, to pray for our enemies, to lift those up who are in disagreement with us. 
Well, apparently, in Paul's situation with the Philippians, there were a couple of people who weren't doing that. And Paul says these two women need to come together with the same mind under the same God of their Savior and come to agreement. And then he calls the rest of the church to come alongside them to help them in this dispute. I'm not going to spend much more time here. The simple thing is, is we are never called to live in hatred with each other. We're never called to live in defiance, in division with one another. As a matter of fact, let me just say, one of the things that Paul and Jesus and Peter and John over and over throughout the New Testament warn us about is those that would create division within the church. As a matter of fact, I've got a couple passages here. Romans 16, verse 17. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid these people. Then go on to Titus chapter 3, verses 9 through 11. It's, Paul says, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. For they are unprofitable and worthless. And listen to what he says. As for a person who stirs up division, uh, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. I'll just sit on my high horse for just a moment. Division caused by us in the church is hated by God. If we have an issue with someone in the church, let's go face to face with that person, confront that and get it taken care of. And if we can't do that, let's bring some people alongside us. This is what Matthew 18, how Jesus instructs us to handle conflict. If we can't take care of it person to person, bring two or three witnesses alongside to bring, come into that relationship and help redeem and, and take that relationship to a healthier level. Division within God's church is hated by God. And so we have to be very careful when it comes to our relationships within the church. Believe me, people are watching us. And our disunity will destroy our credibility with those who don't know Christ. If a person walks in this building on a Sunday morning and they come sit in these pews or in the chairs in the modern service and they see us quarreling amongst ourselves, they will never come back. And they will dismiss Christ because of our lack of unity. So pay attention to the, the relationships you have and seek redemption in all of those relationships. So that's the first issue. The second issue is found in verses 4 through 7. And, and I think he's telling us in verses 4 through 7, he's addressing how our minds should be directed. So let's look at verses 4 through 7. He says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all, for the Lord is near. Do not be anxious about every, anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The fact is, is there is someone behind the wheel of our thoughts. And that person is you. It's me. We have the ability, Paul says right here, to control where our mind goes. 
And so first off, in verses 4 through 5, he, he tells us to rejoice, to live in joy. We've already talked about that a couple months ago, uh, about the idea that joy is an attitude. It doesn't come with our different situations in life. We can be in a horrible, difficult trial in our life and still have joy. Because joy is not a fleeting emotion that comes and goes. It's an attitude that we approach life with. Then he says, let your gentleness be evident to all. In other words, he's saying, let everyone see how well you get along with everyone around you, not just within the church. Then he goes into a very, very famous passage in verses 6 and 7 about dealing with anxiety. And he's, he's alluding back to Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus addressed and told us not to worry about anything. And Paul says this, don't be anxious. And if you are, pray to God with thanksgiving and let your request be known to him. So in other words, he's saying, if you're worried about something, if you're anxious about something, let go of that. Give it to God. But when you do that, you let your request known and then you do that with thanksgiving. And I think that's a part that we miss all too many times. We want to go to God, we want to complain, and we want to say, oh God, this is so difficult, help me, and we request that. But then we never go, but God, thank you for saving me. Thank you for putting a roof over my head. Thank you for the meal that I'm about to have. Thank you for my family and my friends. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We forget the good stuff in our life. We forget the blessings that God has poured out into us and into the life we have. Because we're so focused on that that we're worried about. And so God says, let it go. But that means that you have to fully let go of that worry, of that anxiety. You can't say, God, I give this to you. And then a day later go, God, I want it back. You can't do that. You can't backtrack all the time. Uh, you can't sit behind the wheel of your mind and keep doing a loop around the same block. It doesn't do you any good. It won't get you to the destination of holiness and righteousness. And according to this passage, the peace that God provides. So we have to let God give us the directions that we're supposed to take in our lives. Now, let me address something in this. Anxiety in this passage is the intense desire of something and the fear of the consequences of not receiving it. That's a quote from a man named John Piper. And the idea here is that biblically, this word anxiety that Paul uses and Jesus uses in Matthew 6 is that worry that doesn't do us any good. You know, it's that sitting up at 3 a.m. in the morning and going, oh, did I turn off the oven? Okay, if you're worried about it, go turn it off. But if it's something that you cannot affect by sitting and thinking about it, that is unbiblical worry. That is unbiblical anxiety. It's that ineffective, that totally unaffected worry and thought process that we sometimes catch ourselves in. Why is it so bad for us? Well, first off, kind of harsh way of saying this, but it's functional atheism. Do we want to be atheists? No. But when we say, God, I need to give this to you, and then we take it back, we're basically telling God, I don't trust you with this. I don't trust that you have the power to take care of this. I don't trust that you have the knowledge that's better than my own. I don't trust your understanding, so give it back. 
So when we worry and we live in that anxiety, we're basically living as functional atheists. We claim to know God, but we don't live like we know God. The second problem with this anxiety is that it kills our joy. The fact is, as Paul tells, the, tells us in verse 4 of this very passage, that we're supposed to rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice. But if we're constantly living in worry and anxiety, is joy going to be an easy thing to find? No. Joy is going to be very difficult to grasp if we're constantly living in worry and anxiety. It makes us self-absorbed. When we worry about our situations or our circumstances or the, the worries of this life, when we worry and worry and worry, all we're thinking about is ourselves. And when we become so self-absorbed, we are unable to focus on the mission that God has for our lives. And so rather than worrying, we give that up and we give it to God and say, God, I don't know what you're going to do with this. I'm going to do everything I'm supposed to be doing in following you, in taking care of this situation. But help me to focus on you and your mission. It takes the self-absorption away puts our focus back on God and puts us back on track. It puts us back on behind the steering wheel listening to the directions that our co-pilot has for us. When he says turn right, we turn right. But when we're all thinking about ourselves and what's going on, we can't listen to what Jesus is telling us to do. And so, we have to be letting go. We have to constantly be on watch for that anxiety that is so unhealthy and so destructive to our souls. Now let me make a distinction here. The anxiety that this passage is talking about is not the same as a mental health problem. The fact of the matter is, is there are people that suffer from mental health problems and that is not what this passage is addressing. Now, there's a difference in that normal worry and anxiety can be dealt with and is instructed to be dealt with in what Paul tells us in Philippians 4, 6, and 7. And so normal worries of this life, normal anxiety that we've allowed ourselves to get caught up in, it can be handled by these instructions. And let me tell you, it will not be easy at first. When you start to say, you know what, I'm going to take control of my thoughts and I'm not going to live in this anxiety anymore, so I'm going to do what God tells me to do. I'm going to pray and I'm going to be thankful and I'm going to give it up to Him and I'm going to look for the peace that He provides. When you do that, it's not going to always work because your spiritual strength is like a muscle. Your mental strength is like a muscle. When you go into the gym, let's say the doctor tells you, hey, you need to go work out. Many of us here do. But when the doctor tells you you need to go exercise, you walk into that gym and you pick up those dumbbells the very first time, they're going to be heavy. But if you consistently, day after day, week after week, month after month, you go in that gym and you pick up those weights over and over and over again, three months down the road, those weights are not going to be as heavy because you're working the muscle. Spiritual discipline is a spiritual muscle. And why am I telling you this? Because many times people go, oh, I'm dealing with anxiety, so I'm going to take control. And then they fail in it. And they give up because they don't realize that that's not how God designed us. 
Yes, the Holy Spirit will give you the strength you need, but it's not going to be perfect at first. You're going to need to work on it. You're going to need to exercise it. The very first time you got behind the wheel of a car and you had to back out of a driveway, it was really difficult for you, I would guess. But now I would venture to say that most of you throw that into reverse, look in the rearview mirror and whip that car right out. It takes practice and discipline to do what Philippians 6 and 7 tells us. So when you fall, when you're not perfect at it every single time, just know that it just takes repetition. It takes practice. It takes consistency. And let the Spirit work you and mold you into the person that He wants you to be. So, that's what normal anxiety is. But guys, there's a difference between normal anxiety and a mental illness. For example, um, things like depression, uh, panic disorders, uh, phobia disorders, uh, clinical OCD. Those kinds of things do require extra help. There's a reason why Paul in verses 2 through 3 of this passage says, and companions come alongside these two women and help them as they go through this struggle. Some of the issues that you may be struggling with may need a little extra help. And I'm here to tell you, please do not be ashamed to go get the help you need for whatever your struggle may be spiritually. Uh, it's like this. Some of you in this room struggle with type 1 diabetes. And type 1 diabetes is a disease, it's a disorder of the body where you need to take insulin. And if you don't take discipline, you're not going to make it very long, right? Most of you are familiar with diabetes and how it works. Would any of you look down on someone who had diabetes and say, oh, you're taking insulin, you must not have enough faith? No. God gave us medicine for a reason. And so when we have a disorder that requires medical assistance or professional help, go get that medical assistance or professional help. There are mental illnesses, mental health problems that require an extra step, and that's why God gave us professionals. Do not be ashamed to go get the help that you need. But let me do a caveat here. Don't just go to anyone. Find a Christian professional. Find a Christian who can help you in your spiritual walk to gain victory over this mental health problem that you may be struggling with. But believe me when I say, if you come to me, if you come to Pastor Josh, you will not be looked down on and we will help you find the help that you need if you're struggling in an area. So if you're here today and you're saying, you know what, I've been struggling with this and maybe Chad's right, maybe I need to go get more help. Come speak with us or go call a Christian counselor. Get the help that you need for your particular situation. So, we've talked about that God tells us, that, uh, addresses the issue of, of addressing the, uh, how we ha have relationships with people within the church. He's talked about, um, addressed how we control our thoughts, how we, how we drive the steering wheel uh, of our mind. And now he tells us in verses 8 through 9, where our thoughts should go. He's talked about how, now he's talking about where. So look with me in chapter 4, verse 8. He says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. 
Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. You see, Jesus wants us to be focusing on the right areas of life. He wants us to know where our mind is supposed to go. And he tells us, he gives us a great list, if it's noble, if it's of excellence, if it's righteous, if it's worthy, if it's true, focus on those things. Let your mind dwell on those things. I would venture to say that many of our difficulties mentally and emotionally are because we spend too much time in the world's cesspool of thoughts. And we don't think and dwell in the place where God wants our minds to be most of the time. So, so let, me, let me just address a few. And I don't mean to step on toes, but I'm going to step on toes here. Because we all have areas of our thinking that we could do better in, right? We all have areas that we go, eh, yeah, I kind of struggle here. So here's a couple. Do you have hateful thoughts? Do you have thoughts of, oh, that person... Maybe you know them, maybe you don't. Maybe they're a politician or maybe they're a person from your past. I don't know who it is. But if you struggle in that area, maybe you need to pay attention to what you're letting into your mind. For example, maybe you need to take a break from watching the news every day. <laughs> when we watch the news, do we turn the TV off and go, man, I feel so good. No. If this is an area that you in particular struggle with, maybe you need to go, okay, I'm going to take a two-week break from what, whatever show I've been watching, whatever news channel I've been watching, because I walk away from that news station feeling worse than I started. So maybe you need to take a break. And you go, oh, but I can't stop listening to, do you know what's on the news? No, Jesus is more important, people. It doesn't matter what happens in this country or what happens across the sea. It doesn't matter because God's in control. And if you say that you can't stop watching the news, that's an addiction problem and a control problem. Maybe if you're going, oh, I can't let go, maybe that shows that you have more of an issue than you thought. And so if you struggle with those feelings, maybe you need to take a break from the news. Maybe you need to just step back for a few weeks. What if you think too much about unhealthy thoughts about someone other than your spouse? Or maybe you think too many unhealthy thoughts against your spouse. Well, maybe you need to spend more time focusing on your spouse. Not on their weaknesses, not on their faults, but focusing more on their blessings and their good attributes. And those godly things that you're so thankful for about them. Maybe you need to spend less time watching soap operas and reading romance novels. Because those don't lead us towards a greater relationship with our spouse. And so maybe you need to take a break from those things. Maybe do you think about other people's stuff too much. Maybe you look around and go, oh... The guy three doors down has this 1965 Mustang that I would love to have. Or you know what? They've got this beautiful house and oh, I wish I could have that. Or that guy's golf clubs are exactly the set that I want. I don't know what it is, but maybe 
If you spend too much time thinking about other people's stuff, maybe it's time that you stop watching shows about those things. If you're the car guy, maybe you need to take a break from the car shows for a little bit. If, if you're a, a lusting after someone else's golf clubs, maybe you need to sit back and reevaluate where your values are at. The fact is, guys, there are so many areas in our mind that are danger zones. And Christ gives us, in verses 8 and 9 here, He gives us a roadmap of thought processes. He gives us a roadmap of the things that we should be destining ourselves for, the destinations that our thoughts should have. We need to be going towards the things that are noble, going towards the things that are true. We need to be going towards the things that are right and godly and excellent and noteworthy rather than the things that the world distracts us to all the time. So here's my question. How much control do you have over your thoughts? I want you to do this. This week, I want you to just pay attention to what you think about and write it down. If you catch yourself thinking about this or that, write it down this week and look and see where your thoughts tend to go and then look at, okay, if my thoughts tend to go this direction instead of that direction, maybe I need to make a plan to stop going that direction and go this direction. Think on the things that are noble, things that are true, things that are godly and excellent and noteworthy. Will you join me in prayer? Almighty God, thank you so much that we are not slaves to our thoughts. We are not slaves. We are not shackled. We are not imprisoned by the areas, the directions that our thoughts go. We have the ability... According to 2 Corinthians 10.5, we have the ability to take every thought captain, captive to obey Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to do just that. Help us to take every thought that we have, to take it captive and put it into obedience under Jesus Christ. Help us as we do that, Lord. We thank you and we praise you for the salvation found in Jesus Christ alone, that only through him and the sacrifice that he made on a cross, we could have victory over sin, over our thoughts, over the areas in our life that drive us away from you. We can have victory. And Lord, we pray that we would pursue you and pursue the cross. We thank you, Lord, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we're going to have a time in our service of response, a time where you can come up and pray at the altar if you need to pray, uh, where you can come and talk to Pastor Josh and I if you need to talk with someone this morning. Maybe uh, you need to talk with someone about the mental struggles that you're having. We are available to you. Maybe you're here today and you say, you know what? I struggle and I want the hope that's found in Jesus Christ. If you're that person, come talk to Josh and I. We would love the opportunity to talk to you about what a life-changing relationship with Jesus looks like. So let's stand and let's respond in prayer and worship.